Good morning, church. My name is Kendra House, and I am connected to, you know, the lead pastor here. Um, Happy New Year, everyone. Glad y'all are here today. Um, This morning, we're going to be reading out of 1 John chapter 1, um, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was the, with the Father and was made manifest to us. That, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. All right. Um, Good morning and happy new year indeed. If you're here this morning and braved the elements, uh, you are a part of the A-team. So thank you for, for being here. Um, reentry's tough, man. So glad you're here. Hey, uh, we're going to take a, a little break from the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to go back to what I want to do every single year at this time uh, a vision and value series. want to talk about who we are as a church, what we're striving for as a local expression of a church in Odessa gathered together at the Fundome. Um, convictionally, we are a church that um, really clings tightly to what's known as expository preaching. So on the whole, we will take book by book, verse by verse, and feed you a steady diet of the Word of God. Um, every year at this time, though, we were going to just briefly lay that aside and do some more topical things. Um, and this year, it's vision and value. So like Almost a year ago to the day, we launched Redeemer Odessa at, with 14 adults and 9,000 kids. Um, so here we are. Uh, again, you guys are the A-team, but collectively our membership right now is right around 40 um, with still 9,000 kids. Um, and so some of you were not here from the beginning, and some of you... Uh, while I hope you have picked it up along the way, what we are, who we are, what we're trying to be about, um, I just want to make sure that as a church, as a family, as a community uh, of believers, that we are all on the same page. So we're going to spend the next few weeks um, talking about um, who we are. At Redeemer Church, everything we do will flow from what we believe to be true about Jesus. Everything we do, everything we aspire to be, we want that to be anchored in Jesus. 
Our vision is to be a church anchored in the Word of God, for the worship of God, to the glory of God, for the mission of God to reach the world in the name of Jesus. So all of our ministry activity will flow from our understanding of who Jesus is. And out of that, all of what we believe, all of what we believe about Jesus, will flow into one of our three values as a church. I like to think of them as buckets, if it's easier, you know, like, or cups and funnels, whatever. These buckets are gospel, community, and mission. So this month, we're going to spend some time reminding one another of what it is we believe and why it is we do what we do, okay? And the last Sunday of January, we're going to talk about church membership, what we believe the Bible teaches about church membership, why we believe it's important. We're going to talk about why we as a church practice covenant membership. And so at the end of January, we are going to begin our covenant renewal season or our covenant renewal process, where if you are a covenant member of Redeemer Church, you are essentially rejoining the church. So that's coming down the pike uh, this month, but today I just want to spend some time talking about the most important bucket of the three buckets, and that's the, the gospel bucket. If we're wrong here, if we don't rightly understand the person and work of Jesus, then everything else we do is essentially meaningless. Like, we could gather in our community groups. We could show up on Sunday mornings here and sing some songs. But if it isn't done in the name of Jesus, if it isn't done out of the overflow of our relationship to Christ, man, then we're no better than a, than a social club. We're no better than some charitable organization. And the church of God is called to more than just good works. And the church of God is called to more than just fellowship and hanging out. We are certainly called to good works. We are certainly called to Christian fellowship. But we're also called to obedience. We're called to follow Jesus. Because we are being made in his image, we are being transformed into his likeness, we are being changed by faith in order that we look more and more like Christ, which, church, that is the ultimate goal of Christianity. It's not that we get to heaven, that's a nice reward and a great byproduct, but the goal is that we become more like Christ. So we're called to faith, and we're called to dependency through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So as a church, as believers, as Christians, we are called to faith in Christ. James 1 says that faith produces endurance, which leads to perseverance in Christ. We don't do good works to earn salvation, but rather because of the faith given to us through the Holy Spirit, because of the death and resurrection in Jesus, we are now set free to love and obey and to follow Jesus. So if you're a believer this morning, it is important for you to be reminded daily of your need for Jesus. And if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, I pray that you will just have an encounter with the God of the universe this morning. 
I pray that you would have an encounter with the Savior of the world and join him in his body, the church, for the mission to the world. So I'm going to pray to that end this morning, and then we're going to look at this text together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. I pray this morning that you would show us our need for you. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our desire for obedience. Increase our desire for love and faith and obedience to you. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to remind us of our depravity. Lord, and then help us just to see your grace and mercy to us. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you would just take a minute and pray for yourself. Pray that the Lord would soften your heart to the things you need to hear this morning. Lord, we love you. Lord, we trust you. We invite you to do a work here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so a lot of us just got done spending an ample amount of time with our families, you know, our parents or grandparents, cousins, etc. For me, along with watching a lot of football and watching a lot of Christmas movies and eating like I'm 12 years old again, um, it's always fun to go to my parents' house and we play just a ton of games with my family. Inevitably, we always end up reminiscing about the things, you know, like, remember when, when this happened? Show of hands in here this morning, how many of you have, like, a family heirloom or something that has been passed down from generation to generation, like a secret recipe or something like that? Show of hands. A couple of you. Cool, cool. So my family doesn't really have any of that. Every now and then I get something from like one of my great grandparents. Like this year my dad was like, here, here's a cigarette lighter. This was my grandpa's and it has a bowler on it. And so in that one gift I learned that my great grandfather on my dad's side had two passions, bowling and Marlboro Reds. Um, But we don't have anything like really super substantial. But here's what we do have. I am fortunate enough to still have three out of my four grandparents living. I had one grandmother who passed away when I was in college, and um, she had a really hard childhood. Like, she did not have any money. She grew up in the Depression. So because of that, she learned how to stretch her, her nickels and dimes. Um, her mom taught her how to cook and how to bake. I bet until she got married to my grandpa, she never ate out at a restaurant ever because my grandpa didn't have it nearly as hard as she did. So her mom, my great-grandmother, taught her how to make pies. And not just any pies. They are the best pies. Do not try to convince me otherwise you will lose, and that might become a church discipline issue for one of us. So don't try to convince me otherwise. It doesn't even really matter what kind of pie she was making It was just really special because she knew, here's the secret, she knew how to make a crust, a homemade pie crust. And she had her mother's recipe, and it was written down on a little 9,000-year-old index card. Um, Every year on my birthday, she'd make me at least two pies, a coconut pie and a chocolate pie. And if she was feeling really generous, sometimes I would get a lemon pie as well. When she died... I was really sad, 
Really, really sad. And then Thanksgiving rolled around, and there was not a pie to be had. Not a good one, at least. I think someone went to, like, Albertsons and picked up a fake pumpkin pie. Uh, That wound got reopened in a different way. Thankfully, now my mother and my wife now have that recipe. Now I just got to learn how to convince them on making the pie. Um, So I have some hope. I have some hope that one day I will get to taste that goodness again. So it's not a secret family recipe, but what if, just imagine with me for a second, what if that was just my Meemaw secret recipe and the world's best pies just died with her? That'd be really bad for me. I sort of think of the gospel in terms of my grandmother's pies. Stay with me for a minute. My Meemaw wrote it down. Her mom wrote it down, and then she wrote it down for my mom, for my wife, or for my sons and daughters, if they're so inclined. When Levi was three, I asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he said, I want to be a cooker guy. And so I'm going to give him that recipe and let him try his hand at it. The apostles of Jesus, in the same way, wrote down the work and words of Jesus for the church to know Jesus. And because of their faithfulness to continue in the work of Jesus after Jesus had ascended, we are now gathered today. Jesus in Matthew 28 gives the disciples what's known as the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So now disciples of mine go and make other disciples of all nations. And we get to be the beneficiaries of this. But the question that we are presented with and the question that the world is constantly wrestling with, whether people are willing to admit it or not, is this. How do we know that Jesus is the only way? How can we trust what the Bible says? Ultimately, this morning I have one goal, and every time any one of us opens the Word of God before the gathered church, and that is this. To the glory of God, our Creator, our Sustainer, and crucified and resurrected Savior, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, I want to communicate to you that Jesus is who He says He is. And that because He is who He says He is, He is worth giving up your life for. He is worthy of being followed in love and devotion and in worship. And I hope to communicate that to you this morning. That Jesus is worth it. It is why we, hear, why we gather here every week. Man, so regardless of where you're at with Jesus this morning, my hope is that the Lord would reveal himself to you this morning. Let's take a look at our text. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. All right, so just a little context here. This is the Apostle John writing near the end of his life about his experience with Jesus. John was one of the first disciples of Jesus, and John also is the author of five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, uh, three letters to the church, uh, three letters to churches, they're named 1 John, 2 John, 3 John accordingly. And, and then the book of Revelation at the end of, of your Bible. 
So it's my plan, again, I've said this before, it's my plan to preach through the whole New Testament uh, in the life of this church. And so I'm going to get to the first, second, and third John in a couple of years so we can really, really unpack uh, what's going on here. But for now, just know our purposes, for our purposes this morning, it's really important for us to know that John is writing these three letters to combat false teachings about Jesus. A false teaching about Jesus or God is a teaching that contradicts the Bible either in part or in whole. So, for example, two of the common heresies about Jesus that John was writing uh, to address were these. John is writing 1 John because there are people in and around these churches that he is writing to telling people in and around these churches that Jesus didn't actually come to earth. The teaching is called Gnosticism, and it's saying that Jesus was merely a spirit who inhabited the man that we know of as Jesus, and God had not actually visited his people in a physical sense. Rather, Jesus was purely a spirit, not an actual person, is what they teach. That would contradict the orthodox view of the doctrine of the Trinity— which the entire Christian faith rests on, that God became a man and died to save sinners. So here's another heretical position taken in these churches. It ties in with the first because if God hasn't really become flesh, and if the God-man Jesus through his death didn't actually pay for sins, and God hadn't sent Jesus to die to redeem his people, then sin isn't all that serious. These heretics maintained that it was entirely possible to be in fellowship with God in spite of sin, or rather, it is possible to have no marked life change and be in right standing with God. And a lot of people who claim to be Christians still try to function this way today. And these positions, both of them, contradict the Word of God. So here we have the Apostle John writing possibly from exile to churches that he has either planted or helped somewhere along the way. And what seems to be occurring is that Christians in these churches are being swayed or influenced by the world around them. Specifically some heretical teachings about the person and work and nature and character of Jesus. There is nothing new under the sun 2,000 years removed from this event, churches and Christians are still prone to drift and still need to be reminded about who Jesus is. Christians need to be reminded of the gospel just as much as people who aren't believers. So John, who is an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, is going on the defense for the case of Christ. He is writing from the position that because of what he knows... What he knows to be true based on the words of Jesus as God himself. He's writing from a position that would claim that a genuine knowledge of, of and a genuine love for God propels somebody towards obedience. He says, that which was from the beginning. John is therefore establishing the eternality of Jesus as God. Jesus was not created Jesus was there at creation. 
Jesus is not less than God the Father. He is equal to God the Father and God the Spirit in essence and substance as a member of the Trinity. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has always existed as God. And John says he was there. He was there from the beginning. In John 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. Meaning, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus is the divine voice, the divine image, the divine embodiment of God. Through him, God is made audible, God is made visible, and God is made touchable. And so John goes on not only to defend the person and work of Jesus, but also the ministry of the apostles. He says the one who was there from the beginning, we've seen him. We've seen him with our own eyes and we've heard him with our own ears and we've touched him with our own hands. And this Jesus, who was with God at the beginning, because he has always been God, is the word of life. John says that the life was made manifest, meaning that it became physically present. In John 1, he also says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is called the incarnation. It is the whole reason why we celebrate Christmas. And through him, through Jesus becoming flesh, we are given life. We are given eternal life. One theologian, uh, he's got a German name, so don't laugh at me. Dr. Schnockenberg says it like this. The incarnation is the descent of the life eternal into the world of humankind, alienated from God. The invasion of the absolute, indestructible power of life into this transitory cosmos, destined as it was to ruin. So John says, this is our story. This is what we are reporting to you, that in Christ, by faith, in the crucifixion for the pardon of sins, and the resurrection of Jesus, that Christ is the word of life. In him, there is eternal life. This Jesus, this word, this God came to earth. And here is why we're writing these things. John, 1 John 1, 3 says this. Follow along with me. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. John is saying that the ministry of the apostles is in order that we, the church, Christians, can know Christ and have fellowship with God and one another. And look, here's, I'm going to submit this. I would argue that without the apostles' testimony, without their faithful witness to obey Christ's commands, the we's of Scripture, they would not exist. John is saying you are in Christ because of what he did for you. But without the apostles, the church would not look like the church as we know it. Because there would be no saints' communion. Relationship with God starts by God calling us to salvation. And fellowship with God and the church starts by aligning ourselves rightly with the word of God. 
So we're able to function as a church and we're able to function as Christians because we can hold to what the New Testament teaches about the person and work of Jesus and its divine impact on our lives. The church, not just Redeemer Odessa, but all Christians everywhere in the world as the universal church exists as an expression of the gospel of Jesus. When we gather together, we are faithfully participating in the ministry of Jesus by sitting under the authoritative word of God given to us through divine inspiration, meaning that the words in your Bible are inspired by God through his spirit by the written testimony of his apostles. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And because the word is authoritative, because the word is true, this word proclaims salvation to sinners. The word gives us assurance that because of salvation, we are now in a family through the blood of Jesus. So church, are you believing in the word of God? Are you trusting in it as you sit under its teaching? Are you reading and meditating on the Word of God and are you doing what it says? Are you meaningfully connected to a body of believers the way that the Scriptures are calling you to? Are you rejoicing in the salvation that the Scriptures proclaim? Salvation is this. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So this seems like a very, like, out there, ethereal, sort of Gen Z, touchy-feely way of describing God, right? God is light. God's got good vibes and positive energy. <laughs> um, the text says it. God is light. But what does this even mean? I think we all know what light is, right, and what its function is. But when the writers of the Bible attribute this to God, it's significant. But why? What exactly are they saying? So just to remind you what our point is this morning, a point of our time together this morning, we're wanting to affirm what Jesus says about himself. So in conjunction with that idea... Why is it important that God is described as light? In the Old Testament, when God is described as light, it's serving two purposes. Number one, it's symbolizing communication. Meaning, what is God saying or what is God revealing? And then it also symbolizes God's character or who he is. So, for example, uh, in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, we see Moses having an encounter with a burning bush. Um, the bush was not consumed, but the bush was, was lit up. It was on fire, hence the burning. Um, and then when the Israelites were wandering in the desert at night, God would provide a fire. God would provide a light for them to know who he is. And then when they erected the tabernacle, uh, inside the Holy of Holies, there were two lampstands that were always burning to communicate that God, yes, God is light. 
Light is used in the Psalms to describe God. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 104, 1-2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So then we have Jesus echoing this imagery about God and himself and his teachings. So, for example, in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in John 12, we read, uh, John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So when John is saying that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, He's reminding the church that he is writing to you about who God is. God being light reveals who God truly is. God being light is not the whole summary of the Bible or the gospel message, but rather it is the starting point of the gospel message. When the Apostle John says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, he is communicating this. He is communicating that God is holy And in him, there is no sin. God is perfect in nature and character. God is perfect doctrinally, so we know his word is true. God is perfect morally. There is no evil in him. And God is perfect intellectually. There is no error in him. So we can trust God. Jackie Hill Perry says this, and it's really beautiful and amazing. Um, She says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? John writes these things to this church that is beset on doctrinal error, on ethical error, on relational error, to remind them of who it is they are to be following. Follow this Jesus, who is the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And because of his nature and character as God, who by the word of God hates sin, and because of that he will never sin against us, because of his great love which he has for us. God is perfect. God is holy, meaning God is set apart, meaning God is above all others in heaven and on earth. And the church of God, believers in Jesus, should strive for this type of holiness as well. John then moves into a series of if-then statements. If you remember geometry from your high school days, these were known as like conditional statements. John has a series of them in the next few verses, so let's take a look at them. 1 John 1.6 says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth. So one thing to take note of here is this. John uses the word we. It's all inclusive. We, you, me, the Apostle John, every human who has ever lived except for Jesus has sinned. John starts with a negative um, assertion. If you claim to be a Christian... If you say that you are walking in fellowship with God and his bride, the church, and yet your life is marked by consistent, ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin, then John says, we lie. 
we are not practicing the truth. Man, take some inventory of your life for just a second. Especially if you would claim to know Jesus. Is there anything in your life? Like, if you just look, if we just look together over the past couple weeks, is there anything in your life that shows that you really and truly love Christ? Shows that you're really and truly devoted to Christ? Man, it's a real easy trap to fall into in our Bible Belt culture of saying we're Christians and then we have horribly filthy mouths. It's a real easy trap to fall into our Bible Belt culture of saying we're Christians and then we aren't loving towards people like any people at all. It's a real easy trap to fall into in our Bible Belt culture of saying we're Christians and then just sitting idly by and not pursuing Jesus at all. What in your life would suggest that, yes, you really are a true follower of Jesus? If you'd say nothing, or if you can't identify anything, man, that's a problem. But then the text offers us some hope. Verse 7 says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we're walking in the light, then we have fellowship with God in the church. And, the text says, and, and this is a very important use of the word and. Remember earlier I said God being light reveals who he truly is. But also God being light and walking in the light shows us who we truly are. Sinners. Desperate, needy sinners in need of a Savior. This and that the Apostle John uses leaves room for grace. John at no point talks about perfection and holiness apart from the grace of Jesus. There is an understanding and an acknowledgement that we, as long as we are living in the sin-laden world, will continue to sin. However, if we are in Christ, if we are repentant, and Jesus forgives. As a result, church, hear me, as a result, the only hope that we have is that we cling to the cross. John says the blood of Jesus cleanses us. The blood of Jesus makes us clean. The blood of Jesus justifies us. It makes us right. It makes a sinful humanity right before a holy and just God. Jesus' blood, by his death on the cross, cleanses us from all sin. Christian and unbeliever alike, that is really good news for you. If you are in Christ, Jesus' death has declared you not guilty. If you are an unbeliever, Jesus' death has made a way for you to be declared not guilty. But also hear me, if you remain unrepentant, if you remain willing to walk in darkness, as it says in verse 6, then you don't have fellowship with God. And therefore, you are doomed to an eternity in hell separated from his love and mercy. 
man, if you don't think you need repentance, if you would say that maybe you do sin, but you're not a bad person, the scriptures would suggest otherwise. The need for Christ's death on your behalf would also suggest otherwise. John says that all sin is cleansed. The Greek usage of this phrase does more than just, you know, suggest your past sin has been forgiven. The Greek gives a continual cleansing. Your past sins have been cleansed. Your current sins are being cleansed, and your future sins are already forgiven. Every single sin that defiles you, every single sin that seeks to separate us, every single sin that would destroy us has been forgiven by God the Father through the Son's death. Jesus' atoning death makes fellowship with God possible and maintains our fellowship because of the forgiveness that it provides. You who were once a God-hating, sin-loving, rebellious wreck are now a child of God and are seated with him right now in the heavenly realms. And there's no better news for you that you have been redeemed from your sin. But this good news also ought to motivate our understanding of and our response to sin. Let's look at verse 8. It says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you don't think your sin is a big deal, you're being deceived. Your sin separates you from God, your sin separates you from others, and ultimately your sin leads to your death. Certainly physical, yes, but more detrimentally, it leads to spiritual death. Listen to me, people living in the most self-centered and self-isolated two to three generations in all of history, you are not as strong as you think you are. You need to know that you cannot do this on your own. Your sin will destroy you. And so many times, we're so absolutely blind to it. Do not play around with it. And don't fight it without a local body. I would gently submit this to you, that if you are not in community with other believers, you are not fighting your sin in the way that God has commanded you to do so. So here's our response. Verse 9. If you're looking like maybe one of your New Year's resolutions is to memorize more scripture, um, and if it's not, maybe it should be. First uh, John 1.9 is a great one. Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So our response is this. We confess. We confess our neediness. We confess our depravity. We confess our specific failures to Christ who already knows them. We confess our neediness to Christ who already knows and chose to go to the cross in love in spite of this. God is faithful to do what he says he would do. God has been working since the fall of man in Genesis 3 to redeem a sinful people back to himself through the forgiveness of sins and making the unrighteous 
right before him. Listen to me. I hope this doesn't sting too bad. You don't have to pretend that you're perfect. Let's be honest, you're not fooling anybody. There is a consistency in all of Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need forgiveness. God is not a liar, so don't say that you don't need him, either actively with your mouth or passively with your life. Confess your sins, repent, turn away from them, turn to God in faith, and you will be forgiven. There is no shame at the foot of the cross, because Christ has already borne all that for you. There is no guilt in the mercy of Jesus because you have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. Here's another verse if you're into memorizing scripture. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This word propitiation means substitute. Christ has been substituted in your place. He is the substitute for our sins. Man, doesn't that give you more hope than trying to reach a standard that you can't reach on your own? Man, Christ has made a way for you to be forgiven. And Christ has made a way for you to get to walk in a lot of freedom. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus came as the true light of the world. John 1.9 says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Turn to Christ in faith and in repentance and independency and lay down your burdens, lay down your sin, lay down your shame at his feet. Those who profess to know God are distinguishable from the rest of the world, as distinguishable as light is from darkness. We are to be different from the world in both our attitude towards sin and our actions against it. So in an effort to be the church of Jesus... Man, let's start with love for the world. Excuse me. Let's start with love for the Lord, which leads to a hatred of sin. Let us be a church that's just marked by confession and repentance. Would you pray with me this morning?